Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Schleicher, who is a professor at Yale Law School and an expert at local governance, federalism, and state and local finances. He's also the co-host of the podcast, Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast, which is a must-listen. He's recently published a new book, In a Bad State, Responding to the State and Local Budget Crises, which offers a comprehensive look at the history of the state and local budget crises in the U.S. and sets out solutions to put these lower orders of government on a more sustainable footing. Although his focus is on the United States, his analysis and our discussion will have a lot of relevance for those interested in Canada's own fiscal federalism. David, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with a basic question. The the book's subtitle asserts that American states and local governments face budget crises. What do you mean? What's the evidence that there is a crisis or more precisely, multiple crises? The, The claim is not that right now we're in a budget crisis. I'll talk about right now in a second, but rather that it has been a persistent feature of American history that state and local governments have faced fiscal crisis. It would be weird if they didn't on some level. We, the United States has 50 states and tens of thousands, you know, more than the local governments. There's a lot of governments. And it would be weird if none of them had crises. It would just be a strange feature. But it has been something that America has dealt with from the first Congress that you may you may some of you may be fans of Hamilton, the Hamilton, the musical. Well, you know, that plan to assume state debts, what Hamilton forgets, right? You got the whole business. I'm not going to rap for you. Um, <laughs> but this has been a, a persistent feature of American political life. And it has been true from there through at least through COVID. And so the claim is not we're facing a crisis right now. We're facing some stress right now, which I can talk about, but rather that this has been a problem over a long period of time. And it's worth taking a moment to think about what tools we might use to address it going forward. As you say, David, the book contains a deep history about American fiscal federalism, starting with Hamilton's assumption of state debts after the Revolutionary War. I don't expect you to outline a complete history here, but help our listeners understand the historical evolution that's led to the current system. What were some of the key policy choices that brought expression to modern fiscal federalism in the United States? So the history is, I mean, we're obviously, the, you know, there's a long history and there are a lot of ups and downs, but America has had both fiscal crises and defaults in its states and cities many, many times over the course of the long swath of my American history. We've developed some legal tools for addressing it, but we've kind of gone back and forth between different policy outcomes. And the central claim in the book, the analytical claim, not the recommendations, but the analytical claim is that when a state 
we're a big city, faces a physical crisis, federal officials face what I call a trilemma, which is that they have three choices and all of them are bad. They can offer bailouts and bailouts will help solve some problems. So if the federal government gives money to a state or city, it will mean it doesn't have to make a severe budget cuts. And those budget cuts are extremely painful, usually because these happen during recessions. And it won't harm the jurisdiction's ability to borrow going forward, which is in the American system, very important for the building of infrastructure. But it will create what economists call moral hazard. The idea that the, the jurisdiction will come to expect this money and may budget irresponsibly. And lenders particularly will expect them to get money. And so they'll kind of give money to anyone and in fact, you saw this after Hamilton's assumption of state debts. So that is a clear, as clear a bailout as you can have. And British and Dutch lenders lent money to U.S. states and said U.S. states on the clear assumption the federal government stood behind them. In fact, it almost became they almost went to war over it. The in the 1840s when the U.S. states defaulted, the British and Dutch investors were so angry, and so in fact, it went even further than that when. When Britain owed money to the U.S. after World War One, they attempted to make the U.S. government offset those debts by defaults that happened in places like Arkansas and Michigan, which is so that's one story. Another bad thing that can happen is you can force them to buckle down, raise taxes, cut spending, really cut government to the bone in a fiscal crisis. And that has benefits. So it avoids moral hazard and it avoids harm to the bond market. But it creates enormous economic harm, which is that you are cutting up, you're kind of doing the exact opposite of what Keynes would suggest, which is you are cutting spending right when the economy is bad. And that is, um, you know, bad for the macro economy. And the third choice you can, and so well, we've done that many, many, many times as well. Probably that's the most common actual answer. The I'll go into one story in a little bit that kind of highlighted. But the third thing you can do is al allow or encourage defaults. And the U.S. has at different points either allowed defaults or actively encouraged defaults at different periods and different times. And this creates some benefits. So you have to cut government by less if the investors are taking some of the harm and you don't have the same moral hazard concerns about providing bailouts. On the other hand, it harms the people's willingness to lend to states and cities. And that is really problematic in the American system because the American system from the beginning the federal government's been very uninvolved in making actual investments. The old joke about the federal government is that it is a um, insurance company with an army. They say it provides old age insurance and has an army and doesn't do much else other than kind of give money to states. If you if you get a service from a government in America, you're very likely getting it from a state or city. If you can touch something, they say if you can touch a bridge, road, it was mostly built by state and local governments with state and local money, sometimes subsidized by, particularly if you consider operations and, and maintenance. And the a default can really harm the ability of the jurisdictions to build stuff. And so here's an example I really like because it happened at the same time where the government kind of, the federal government took two different choices. In the 1870s and 1880s, there was a variety of what were called railroad bond defaults. So the government, local governments had invested a lot in investing, encouraging railroads to come through town. And then there were a lot of defaults because there was a, some overbuilding of railroads. Actually, the story behind this is a little funny, so I'll do one second on this, which is that investors would go around to these towns in Iowa or wherever and like pitch them on railroads. And it was a dead ringer. If you guys know the, the Simpsons episode, monorail, 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 that's basically you understand the dynamic that was happening in Iowa in the 1860s and 70s. And the... Question was, they all, a lot of them had to default. And the question was, should the Supreme Court 
do its best to enforce those bonds. They say, make them engage in austerity. And the Supreme Court took an extremely pro-bondholder position, and it really socked it to these governments. That at one point, they were going around ordering federal marshals to order mayors to raise taxes so much that the mayors would hide and the federal marshals would chase them around. You know, one mayor, the federal marshals like, would occasionally pretend to be town drunks so that no one would suspect them. And But the effect of this was to cause massive austerity during some big economic shocks. But at the same time, it preserved the municipal bond market. And then if you think about infrastructure in America, almost all of the best stuff was built in this period after the Supreme Court had worked really hard to preserve the municipal bond market. So the Brooklyn Bridge and the Croton Aqueduct, I'm doing some New York examples, but all the great things happened in Chicago. And so the, there was this kind of trade-off. At the same time, or roughly the same time, all the southern states after the end of Reconstruction default. Well, almost all of them. Um, and the Supreme Court remakes law to make it so those bonds were easy to default on. This was part of the broad bringing the southern states back into the kind of ordinary political at the end of Reconstruction. But all of these defaults meant that these jurisdictions couldn't borrow. Lenders wouldn't lend them money. They couldn't even sell their bonds on markets. They were not available on national bond markets, never mind international bond markets. And the effect of this is that infrastructure in the South really declined. So if you want to know why the South didn't grow the way that the North did in the kind of boom period of the Gilded Age, well, there are a lot of reasons, and I mean, this is not monocausal or anything, but one of the reasons is they didn't have the infrastructure to do so, and one of the reasons they didn't have the infrastructure to do so because they couldn't borrow from things. So these things have big trade-offs, and we've done all of them over the course of American history. Why don't you talk a bit about the sources of some of the modern fiscal challenges that the book observes at the state and local level? What are the factors that have contributed to this potential modern crisis? I think if you want to tell the modern, the contemporary history of of fiscal problems in the states and cities, you should probably start with the Great Recession. So in the Great Recession, it was a huge hit to everything. They call why we call it great. But one of the reasons the Great Recession was so great was the federal government did provide some money right at the beginning to states and cities, but then didn't stopped. This is kind of the conflict between President Obama and Congress about stimulus, if you recall all that. And the effect of this was to cause a massive fiscal retrenchment at the state and city level. So state and cities fire a lot of workers. So one of the reasons the Great Recession is great and not just bad is, we don't call it the bad recession, we call it the really bad, you know, it's the really, you know, um, uh, is that states and cities fired so many workers that public employment doesn't return to pre-recessionary periods for another 10 years after the recession. Private employment's back in four years, but 10, you know, it's a huge, huge, huge thing. And that's one of the reasons why the Great Recession was so great. So what, how did states and cities respond to this? Well, they did a lot of things. One is that they didn't hire a lot of workers. And so part of that is you didn't have services and that's bad. You know, people aren't getting educated as well or whatever. But also the recession was longer. But another thing they did was they lied. And so states and cities in America generally have or balanced budget requirements and debt limits that say limits on how much they can borrow. And these are, you can get around them in certain ways, but they're, they have some effect and balanced budget rules. And so what did states and cities do that face these fiscal problems? Well, they all also have public employee pensions. And so they simply didn't save for their public employee pensions. And so a huge percentage of debt during the Great Recession period was a period of, of basically borrowing into the future by not, in, not, not saving for pensions. And pensions are a legal obligation, just like bond payments. So this has one effect, which is that if you look back at America in the kind of post-Great Recession period or during the, you know, the post-2012 period, you should have seen a huge 
flowering of investment. So like you should have seen interest rates were low, unemployment was high. This is when governments are supposed to come in and build a lot of stuff, right? That's like the normal story, but you didn't. And anyone who's been in any anywhere in America can look around and say like, where's the great new infrastructure that we should have gotten during this glory period for American infrastructure? And we didn't get it. And one of the, the reasons the jurisdictions were using their borrowing capacity and their to, to cut, underfund their pension liabilities and not to kind of make new investments. So by the time we get to the kind of, Trump years, give or take, uh, the, the states and cities begin to recover. And the period leading into COVID and then were, were kind of nice periods for American states, state and city budgets. The economy's growing. American low state and local budgets are what we call pro-cyclical. When the economy's doing good, the government gets more money and they can spend it. They should save it, but they, they can spend it. And then COVID hit and everyone's terrified about lots of defaults. And there are a couple of things that happened. One is the federal government gave states and cities a boatload of money. They gave every state and city, no matter what fiscal, what fiscal situation it was in, a boatload of money, far larger than the amount of revenue they lost due to COVID. And secondly, the amount they lost due to COVID was much less than people expected. The economy, you know, so states and cities over the last couple of years have become increasingly states, increasingly reliant on on high-end income taxes and capital gains taxes, particularly your Californias and New Yorks of the world. And that did really well during the pandemic. You know, now I'm not breaking any news here. Like the stock market was kind of crushing it. And then and also, by the way, the inflationary period has helped a number of jurisdictions because yes. their tax rates are fixed. You know, so for income tax, they're fixed at dollar amounts. And then, you know, they, if you see inflation, that's quite good for your revenues and can inflate away some of your debts. And so coming in to relatively recently, states and cities are probably in the best period they've been in, in, in at least in very, very, very long time. But right now, we're starting to see a shift. So right now, in the last, say, four or five months, we've seen a real shift. States and cities are, revenues have started to fall, particularly in your New York's, California, Illinois, the ones that are uh, very income tax dependent. Federal money is starting to run out. You kind of saw a nice moment in this, which is in the debt limit deal. I don't mean nice, but happy. I mean nice, <laughs> illustrative. You saw some amount of money that had been given to states and cities or was going to, going to be allocated to states and cities in the ARP, the, one of the COVID era bills, is got pulled back. And this had the effect, this is going to, the states and cities are going to start to lose revenue. Now, we're going to find out in the next period, in the period afterwards, whether they used their boom period to save and to set things up, or did they, they're called playing Brewster's Millions with it. And for those of you who are fans of the, Richard Pryor version of the movie, or even some of the earlier versions of the movie, same idea. It's like, did they spend it all? Did they use it to cut, cut taxes and, and raise spending uh, in ways that are going to be hard to reverse and going carriage, which will mean that they'll have fiscal crises going forward? As we understand these fiscal challenges at the state and municipal level, how much variation is there across the country? Can you, can you give listeners a sense of where the real challenges lie and what, if any, common characteristics those jurisdictions may share? Yeah, so two things. One is that there's enormous variation. America is just a very big country and they face lots of different, you know, so while the American economy is linked, there are a lot of parts of parts of it can boom and parts of it can bust at different times. And further, Americans, this is something for Canadians, we don't have fiscal equalization. We'll come um, to that. Yeah, we don't have fiscal equalization the way you do in Canada. And so the result is that states and cities are more, I mean, they get lots of money from the federal government, but it is the case that you can be, you're kind of more on your own in this respect than you are in in other, in, in a jurisdiction like Canada. And where are we seeing fiscal crisis? Well, I'd see there are a couple of places that you're seeing real, real fiscal stress. One would just be places that have more cyclical revenue. 
So that if you are very reliant on income taxes and high income as opposed to sale or property taxes, your revenues are more cyclical and states' revenues have gotten more volatile over time. And so jurisdictions that kind of, you know, road the high are going to face the crisis. And that, that's going to be your more liberal jurisdictions for the most part. A second type of jurisdiction that's going to face real problems are transit agencies. So transit agencies have lost a huge amount of ridership on work from home being the major force for this. And which, by the way, is, is bigger work from this is something that, again, outside when you talk to people outside of the U.S., it's a little hard how much bigger work from home is in the U.S. than it is in any other country. It's much bigger in the U.S. than it is in other countries. And the result has been real harms to transagency budgets. And the third one that's related is jurisdictions that are heavily dependent on, on commercial property tax. Let's say the value of office buildings has declined. Again, work from home effect. And again, with both that and transagency, we're like guessing about the future, about the effects going forward, but it seems like a somewhat persistent. And so those types of jurisdictions are the one facing the biggest problems. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I want to talk a bit about the similarities and differences between Canada and the U.S., if that's okay. Yeah. In the context of the Great Depression and World War II, Canada had a royal commission on the state of the country's fiscal federalism. It led to some changes to jurisdictional responsibilities, as well as to the federal transfer system, including, as you mentioned, the establishment of an equalization program in the mid-1950s. David, has the U.S. system, even within states themselves, gone through similar exercises of, quote, who does what? And do you think that something like that could be useful in light of the circumstances that the book outlines? So... At the federal level, with respect to states, the answer is no. I mean, there have been periods where the federal government, federal government has actually changed its relation to states very dramatically over this period. A couple of, I mean, so one is that the creation of a lot of what we call cooperative federalism programs, so Medicaid, which is healthcare for the poor, generally is run on a matching basis where the federal government gives, and that's a very large percentage of state budgets. And a lot of federal programs are run that way, where the federal government is the, where the is that plays a leading role or a major role in financing, if less so in operations. A lot of social welfare works that way. But we have not had a constitutional revision. It was a very old constitution. And particularly since the Civil War, since the Civil War Amendment, the type of review and so changes that you're talking about were not things that have happened. There is some there are some moments when things are afoot. So for a period rough in the 70s to the early 80s, it's something called general revenue sharing, which is the federal government, which is a lot like equalization. It's a it will it's a lot like federal tax collection for the purposes of giving money to states. It didn't have the same effort at equalization, but it, it is a effort of federal government to directly to subsidize state budgets, but not on a programmatic basis, just a here's a button, ass sort of way. But the federal government also does, as a function of the way it taxes and provides money for social welfare programs, distribute money across distribute jurisdictions in a way that doesn't do full equalization, but it does a lot. So for instance, a New Mexico, and this is true across most of the South and West, 
gets Mexico gets more than two dollars for every dollar it sends in in taxes to the to the federal government. And New Jersey gets less than less than seventy cents for every dollar it sends in. And why is that? Well, New Jersey is really really rich. New Jersey is by some definitions the richest political subdivision in. I don't know, the history of the world. No, it's close to it, at least. Um, it's a really, really, really rich place. People who think of The Sopranos have got it completely wrong. It's a really, really, really rich place. And so it gets sends in a lot of money because taxes are progressive, and it gets back less because it has, it has well, it has plenty of poor people. It doesn't have a disproportionate number, and it doesn't have any military bases, uh, or many. And so the combination is that it doesn't do... So we, we, have a, we have a system that does some equalization, but it's not structured the same way as Canada does. And because we don't have... You know, our constitution is just really old and is premised on ideas from the 1860s and 1870s and from the 1790s and 1780s. And so um, it is a... You know, we don't go through the same structure at the state level with respect to cities. There's been a lot more action. Um, and so the big thing at the state to city level that's happened, and this is very much in a Canadian spirit, is um, state constitutions in America generally although have provisions that uh, create a positive constitutional right to education. And this has been interpreted by most but not all state courts to provide for some degree of required equalization across school districts. And school districts are the biggest local form of local government, bigger than municipalities in terms of their budgets. And so they also, it's like teachers, as it is in most countries, the most common job in America and a single job title. And there, so there's been equalization in that. And that's in real effects on where people live. And, you know, so, so again, there are equalization things, but they're not as you know, as well thought out as what we saw in Canada. Yeah, well, let me put that to you precisely. Uh, Josh McCabe, an American sociologist and now a scholar at the Niskanen Center, has argued that the U.S. should adopt uh, a biggie equalization program in order to help stabilize state and local budgets and enable greater decentralization. What do you think of that argument? And why do you think it's failed to get traction in the American political system? Yeah, so I I almost view it as like kind of I don't know if you were in, if you were a kid, a regular assignment in the United States in elementary school or is like write your own constitution, yes. and the idea is like what if we radically rethought the structure of American government? And the arguments for equalization are really hostile to the broader principles of American constitution, where the states are pre constitutional sovereigns, and so while the federal government does do things, the idea that they would be not actually independent in the way that is is quite antithetical to the broader American constitution. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea, by the way. It's um there's a any of you know um the Witt Stillman movie, Last Days of Disco, there's a wonderful monologue where uh one of the characters goes, goes, the Shakespearean admonition to thine own self be true is premised on the idea that thine own self is something good, to which being uh true would be admirable. But what if thine own self isn't that good? Well, <laughs> Same, you could say the same thing about the American Constitution. There are a lot of ways in which the American Constitution is a real laggard. It's, just, it's old. I'm not not blaming anyone. It's just, you know, the other countries have redone their constitutions. We've hopefully developed a thought on how con- constitutional law works. Surely when America advises other countries on how to write constitutions, it never, ever looks like the American Constitution. It looks very, very different. And so this suggests well, maybe even there isn't a ton of confidence in the American constitutional structure, even among uh, Americans. But I do think the ideas of, of kind of like a strong form of equalization rather than a kind of weird jury-rigged one are pretty hostile to American constitutional norms. That's fascinating. I would just say in parentheses, David, that I've seen some analysis that looks at federal transfers in Canada versus federal transfers in the United States. You know, one of the benefits of a big E equalization program is it enables us, I think, to have a cleaner set 
of intergovernmental transfers. There's because e- big e equalization is carrying out the function of of equalizing to an extent. Then our other transfer programs are able to run on a more principled per capita basis. Whereas in the U.S., there's a kind of yeah. element of equalization built into so many different intergovernmental transfers, which you know creates transparency issues. Yeah, et again, again, I think there's a lot to be said for Canadian Canada's constitutionalism, particularly in the context of Canada, right? So it is you have a are solving a variety of types of political problems that are you know keeping the Maritimes, incorporating them in, like the, the the question of of what to do about Quebec. And so like these are really difficult problems that Canadian Canada system is a sensible solution to. Now, like one of the things I, I mean, so I, I generally tend towards what I call ameliorationist solutions, which is like, how can you make things better like without imagining that you can write with a, a clean slate on uh and and so I don't spend too much time worrying about equalization as a structural thing, because again, it's it's premised on a really, really different institutional structure and legal structure and set of ideas about relationships. So, I mean, one of the things is, well, uh, state identity has declined. The people don't think of themselves as Alabamans or Connecticuters, they're called nutmeggers, but you know, not at night, but original identity. The there's a I think it it is it is safe to say that with the ab, kind of exception or difficulty of Quebec, that there's a greater other feeling in Canada towards peer which which equalization represents in some way. Um, and so the, um, again, like, I think you can imagine policy responses that are consistent with a variety of types of political attitudes in America, but like imagining the U S as Canada is like, um, it's like a, a mugs game as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Point, point well taken. So let's focus on some specific dynamics within the U S system itself. You mentioned earlier, David, that uh, several states have balanced budget laws or even tax expenditure limitation laws. Uh, what do you think of them? Are they useful for mitigating against budget crises? Or as you sort of alluded earlier, can they actually contribute to them in a way? Well, so it is surely the case that they can contribute to the problem of state budgets being pro-cyclical. That is to say that if you have to balance your budget, and states have to balance their budget for a couple of reasons. One of them is legal, but another one is like they don't print money. So they're and they're fiscally independent in a, in a way. And so that they like have to the same way that's true for countries in the eurozone who are you know, there's real limits on your ability to run deficits but they exacerbate this and also states and jurisdictions can figure out ways around them um there's a big debate between lawyers and economists about whether they're enforceable or not and economists say well in aggregate they are and lawyers say well in specific any smart lawyer can come up with a way around these limits what i'd say is that um and I, a better system than our debt limit system would be something like you see in some European countries that require balanced budgets across a business cycle, but allow deficits to be run during a rough time, but require savings in good times. And so one of the things the book argues for is broadening the base for what's counted as debt. So the one of the ways jurisdictions lie and get around their debt limits and balanced budgets is not funding their pension obligations. And so I but pension obligations are just debt. You know, yes, you have to pay them, make the payments going forward. They're they're a particularly unhealthy form of debt in that they're not backing an asset, like they're not borrowing to build something or borrowing to buy something. But you have to make the payments, they're debt. And so when we calculate debt limits, we should cal- include in them things like pension obligations. But I think that they would be healthier if they required balance across the cycle. One of the more peculiar aspects of American fiscal federalism is the federal, state, and local tax deduction which has been somewhat reformed, but still enables American tax filers in high tax states and localities 
to deduct a portion of these taxes from their federal tax bill. What's the rationale for the state and local tax deduction and what are its consequences? How, how does it fit into your story? Yeah, so again, I don't spend a ton of time on self mostly because, again, it, it has been uh, substantially reformed. It, I actually think the way to understand it is twofold. One is as a mechanism for equalization, right? So it's a back that the, or kind of anti-equalization in this case. So it's yeah. the idea is that, that uh, rich jurisdictions are giving a lot more to the federal government than poorer jurisdictions are, right? They're like giving more and getting less. And the state, state and local deduction, because richer jurisdictions are broadly speaking, higher tax jurisdictions within with some degree of uh, variation there. And that higher income people are, you know, the are the ones who take deductions and they're more likely to be in rich, jur- rich jurisdictions. Um, it mitigates that to some degree. The other thing is that it fits in with a broader part of American tax code, which is that like charitable contributions are deductible. Um, and so there's an idea of when you're trying to figure out what someone is genuinely owes the federal government that we deduct the money they're giving to other people. And so, again, there's a logic to it. Um, professor at NYU named Dan Hemmel has written what I think is the best defense of the SALT um, that I recommend to any listener who's interested in this. Now, you know, like on the scheme of like the broad scheme of like how to think about crises, these things are largely fixed at the time if a jurisdiction is going bankrupt or on the edge of bankruptcy. You're not going to respond to that by fundamentally changing the American tax system. It would just be kind of a non sequitur. I mentioned that this is like if Chicago is facing a fiscal crisis, you could imagine responding to that by deregulating financial services because a lot of financial services take place in Chicago and Chicago would then do better. But like that would be a really weird way to respond to fiscal crisis and everyone would laugh you out of the room if you proposed it, right? So like, it would just be kind of nuts. And so similarly, like you could imagine, let's say Alaska as a fiscal crisis. And you say, well, let's allow more drilling. You know, maybe, you know, like, but it's a, um, it is not the kind of thing that the, the book is after, which is really about ways to respond to acute fiscal crises. Well, that's a great segue to my next question. As we turn to solutions, uh, what do you think state and local policymakers ought to be ought to be doing? Well, so that you can imagine state and local, and the books aimed at federal lot policymakers and kind of relating to state and local, but I can do all, I can do both. So federal policymakers, I think, should have, when they get, but when there's a crisis and they give aid, should include in that aid conditions to encourage greater fiscal responsibility going forward. And so when the, just so I'm specific, when the federal government was passing the ARP or the CARES Act, giving a lot of money to states and cities, I think they should have included in conditions either tied to that money or tied to other money to avoid some problems the Supreme Court has has created. Condition that jurisdictions budget in accordance with general accepted accounting principles. That there would be, it would be a, that'd be painful for jurisdictions to, to do so. Maybe you could have a lag, give them time to keep it, to get up to it. But the idea would be that if we're, if the federal government is going to be giving you money, the or emergency money when you're in a pinch, the what they, the federal government should insist on is that you accurately represent your fiscal position in uh, when you, not only when you do backwards looking uh, accounting statements, but when you're doing forward looking budgeting. You could even imagine including requirement that they do what Connecticut just put into its bonds, which are covenants for what are called volatility caps. That's to say, if you're getting a big burst of money at one point, either because of federal money or because of uh, of you know your you know, something that magic happens to your economy that's a one time thing, that you have to save a certain percentage of that, and that it would be enforceable by bondholders. So that's one class of things, and you have a lot of other ideas that are in that family of ideas. Another thing is to if you're, America has a municipal bankruptcy. 
law. That is to say, if a, if a city goes bankrupt, we, and some of your listeners may know the story of Detroit, or also the story of Puerto Rico, both of which went through, well, Detroit went through the municipal bankruptcy system, and Puerto Rico went through something that was a lot like it. And the idea here is we could make that system a lot more functional. Bankruptcy has some really wonderful tools for spreading harms across both classes of creditors, but also across uh, austerity and, and defaults. But it require, it's been used some, Detroit, uh, San Bernardino, Stockton, blah, 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 but we could make it a more functional system to allow jurisdictions to use it. And maybe we could even make it available to state governments. And then a final class of things to kind of this, this, some of these press on my like not, desire not to suggest constitutional style reforms, but are make the system government a little more resilient against it's, Again, you have so many state governments, you have 50 states and so many local governments. Some of them are going to have crises. One of the things that I suggest, so I suggest some things to make the government more resilient. And so these ideas are like making it easier for people to move. So right now, when jurisdictions face fiscal crisis, rich people leave because, well, they're rich, they can, but um, it's harder for poor people because housing costs are so high in places that have, um, that have, uh, uh, that are good economies. And so making it easier for people to be, Occupational licenses transfer across places. Um, and so, again, a whole universe of ideas, including the most constitutional thing I suggest, which is federalizing Medicaid. But the idea to make it make the stakes of these crises go down pretty substantially. And so those are the kind of types of things that our government could do. State and local governments have a lot of tools. They can save money when the economy is doing well, right? And so the question is, what types of legal tools do we need to create at the state and local level? And what types of political tools, perhaps, do we need to create the state and local tool to encourage better fiscal performance? In that vein, the progress that we've seen in Canada over the years when it comes to fiscal reform at the subnational level has tended to be catalyzed by crisis. Uh, I think, for instance, of uh, fiscal reform in Ontario or Saskatchewan or Alberta in the mid-1990s. So how, how do you persuade policymakers to take proactive steps along the lines that you outlined in the paper in order to, or pardon me, in the book, in order to avoid a crisis in the first place? Yeah, so that's one of the kind of goals of the book, which is to have a bunch of policy tools lying around such that when a crisis comes up, you have you can go to the, you know, right. So that's like actually what the, what the book's, like the, the kind of structure of what the book's about. But the, so how can I convince them? Well, I don't know. I wrote a book, see if they read it. I don't know. Um, you know, it's available at bookstores, federal policymakers. Um, you can encourage your staff to buy it. Um, I'm all for it. Um, I mean, it's also the case that fiscal reforms in the U.S. have been driven by crisis. It would be, again, it would be strange not to, like, it would take an extremely forward-looking government to, like, make reforms when, no, no one's talking about something because they're painful, they're hard to do, they're complicated. Uh, and so municipal bankruptcy law was created in the shadow of a variety of uh, uh, municipal defaults in the, during the Great Recession, during the Great, during the Great Depression. And it was reformed when uh, in, in the aftermath of New York City, New York City fiscal crisis in the 1970s. So again, we like, again, U.S. is probably as or probably almost, almost certainly more crisis driven in its politics. It's more frantic less forward thinking. It's part of the genius or horror of American politics is that it's, um, you know, is that it's, uh, is that it's less organized in a lot of ways and more open to uh, entrepreneurship in that way. But the, um, uh, the idea here of the book is to give to say to policymakers, when you Phoenix face a crisis, here are some things you should be thinking about. Here's the way you should be thinking about the what's happening and how you should respond. And then also here are a variety of policy tools you could have at the ready to to use in a crisis. Uh, f final question. From the outset of our conversation, David, you you've made the case that really since the beginning of American fiscal federalism, it's been understood by 
market participants, markets themselves, even state and, and local political actors, um, that the federal government is ultimately backs, effectively backstopping the, the fiscal positions of state and local governments. So talk a bit about the incentives for federal policymakers to effectively move in some of the directions that you've been talking about in order to protect the federal government itself. Yeah, so, I mean, the federal government has very frequently allowed jurisdictions to default. It is unlike most jurisdictions countries in the world. So most countries in the world, the provincial provinces are very, very, very controlled by the center. You saw this really change in the mid-1990s when a bunch of provinces defaulted and set off some international financial crises that the um, federal government, national governments have taken greater control over provincial budgets across the world in response to state and local fiscal In America, that really hasn't happened to the degree you've seen in other places. So again, we have periods when we bail out, and that does lead to a degree of centralization. In fact, Hamilton thought that was the benefit. He wanted centralization, so the bailout was part of a true program of centralization. But again, in the 1840s, states defaulted. In the 1870s, states defaulted. In 1932, Arkansas defaulted. Arkansas actually defaults in all three of those periods. It's like it's like the American Argentina. It's wild, a wild place, man. So it is not the case that states or federal government is necessarily standing behind these jurisdictions. And you can see this, by the way, in bond spreads. That is to say that the borrowing rates for American subnational jurisdictions are varied based on their fiscal fit and not, as you see in other countries, that they borrow at the same rate as the national government because the federal government is standing behind them. So you see, real it is not the case that the federal government necessarily stands behind jurisdiction. It has at some times, but not always. And so the I think the way to encourage Federal government to, to the federal government to use its power over states and cities to push them to be more responsible is to note that bailouts are a bad outcome. Like that's not emergency bailouts are a sign of failure. They may be better in the situation than other alternatives, but they're a bad outcome. They're bad for the federal budget, but they're also just you know they encourage interstate conflict in ways that are uh, unhealthy, and they uh, they uh, encourage bad and they create bad incentives on behalf of state and local officials. And so the argument is, you don't like bailouts, and you shouldn't. Well, you know, why don't you take some steps now to make them less likely going forward? Uh, that's a good place to, to wrap up our conversation. The book is In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Budget Crises. Uh, David Schleicher, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Clutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.